Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. I am Robert Kelly. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, the church. If uh, we haven't yet met, so glad you guys have uh, come on out to join us for worship. Uh, if uh, you're new here, especially, a big thank you for coming on out and uh, for trusting us with your morning and hope uh, that uh, it's just a, a great morning for you. I'd love to, uh, a chance to get to know you better. And if you have any questions about the church or anything like that, please do not hesitate to, uh, to ask. So it, over the course of the summer, by the way, could you just uh, grab a Bible there in the seats in front of you? Go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. So you can go ahead and start opening up there. Uh, that's where we're going to be starting. And as you're opening up there, I want to kind of just give a quick little review of where, what we're doing this summer. So over the course of the summer, we are really going to be speaking from our hearts about who we are as a church and uh, what it is that we are uh, passionate about and as a spiritual family, what are we committed to. And so the course of the summer is going to be dedicated to these sort of uh, explorations and reminders. And so for those of you who have been around a long time, some of this will be refreshing for you, some of the, the core mission vision values. And for those of you who are newer, this is a way to sort of reorient you to uh, who we are as a uh, spiritual family. Now, we began two weeks ago with a video from Bob Goff, and I hope you guys were really uh, impacted by Bob and our big Bob fan now. Uh, and he gave, us, uh, he gave us an exhortation to go do something, to go get out of our comfort zone and to actually get moving, to stop sitting on the sideline and to actually engage in the work of Jesus all around the world and around us. And so that was a, a great encouragement. And then we followed that with a message last week that said, you know, you go do something because Jesus is coming back. And this is a really important uh, doctrine that we don't uh, really remember, or uh, I don't think she liked my first point. Uh, she's like, I'll do something right now. Uh, but uh, but uh, we do that because Jesus is coming back, and this is an important idea for us uh, to remember because now we're talking about if, if you're going to go do something because Jesus is coming back, we find out in from last week, and even in our text today, it picks up in that same place, because you know, what, you know, if we're going to go do something, we have to figure out what that, that something is, because the end of all things is near. And that's really where First Peter starts us off here. So we're going to be looking at the something, but before we do that, we want to reflect on what he says here in verse 7. So First Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is near. Now, the word here for end is telos in the Greek. And for many of us, when we think about the end, 
we think in terms of the very last moment, the very last day, which is why we get a little bit discouraged. We're like, well, the, he said the end of all things is near, but that was 2,000 years ago. The end didn't happen. That's because we often will misunderstand this, this word telos. It doesn't have to mean the final result of something or the final day of the reckoning. It can refer to the final phase. It's the last stage. So if you follow what they call redemptive history throughout the Bible, God has been working with humanity in a special way in each season or each phase of his redemptive history. And with the, with the first coming of Christ, with the incarnation, when God became man, when flesh, when, when the deity, when deity was, was enfleshed or incarnated, it began the final phase of God's redemptive plan. So it doesn't matter how long that redemptive plan, that redemptive phase lasts because we are in the last phase. It was marked by the first coming of Jesus and it will come to an end at the second coming, at the return of Jesus. So we are in that last phase. So when he says the end of all things is near, like we mentioned last week, we don't actually know what that, when that is going to be completed, consummated, but we know that we are living in that last phase phase right now. So when we were talking about it last week, we really reflected on two different, two different ways of uh, really understanding it for two different groups of people. For non-Christians, we said it, we've got to take the warning of the return of Jesus seriously. Now, by our best guesses from surveys we've done of the congregation, there could be as many of a third as a third of you who do not yet, in fact, know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. A third. So I know you count it off. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. It's you. One, two, three. You. Like, you know, you, you can just, about a third don't, haven't yet decided to commit their lives to Jesus. That's why the return of Jesus has to be taken seriously, because once he returns, there's no other opportunity for salvation. Like we saw last week, this is the moment where you'll see the separating out of the sheep and the goats. And eventually all of the goats, the people who have been found not to have trusted in Christ, will stand before the white throne judgment. And that white throne judgment is the final moment. There, there, is, there is no other chance. When you're, all, when you're at the white throne judgment, all of your chances are over. If you, are, if you don't do it now, while here in the body, there's no other chance for salvation for you. Only the sure judgment that the scripture promises. And after the white throne judgment, you'll face an eternity separated from God in hell. Now, this is the most difficult teaching of the whole of the Bible. Last week, we spent a lot of time looking at the scriptures because I wanted you to know that this isn't something I'm talking about or making up or trying to like, you know, this is between you and Jesus at this point. I've done my part in, in pointing out what the scriptures say. Now it's between you and him. But I would say don't, you know, don't, you, you've got to take this seriously. Like this is a big deal. If what I'm saying is right and if what Jesus has said is right, if the scriptures are true, this has eternal consequences for you. But we also saw, that was for the non-Christian, we also saw how it's essential for Christians to be changed by the truth of Jesus' certain return. For us to recognize that the end of all things is near because every follower of Christ will also stand before a judgment seat. What the scriptures we talk about as the Bema seat. The Bema seat is where you will receive the rewards for your faithfulness. 
the rewards for your faithfulness that will actually determine how you will spend eternity. So think of it in terms of your glory in heaven. You know, light bulbs all burn with a different intensity, different brightness depending on the light bulb. Well, in a sense, every Christian will, will be illuminated with a different type of glory and a different intensity of glory. And so metaphorically, our lights will burn more brightly or more dim based upon how we live here. We will have greater or lesser responsibility in heaven. We will experience more or less of the fullness of God's delights and his promises. Now, I got to tell you, this was, I'm just reviewing what we did last week. I know some of you weren't here. It's the summer and all that happens. But I was surprised after last week that I did not get a lot more pushback from all of you. I felt like this was one of the most sobering and more controversial of the messages that I've done in a long time. And I was really surprised. I felt like maybe you hadn't gotten the message. So listen, Christian, does it impact you to know that the decisions that you are making now, every day, the decisions you're making right now will impact you for eternity, forever? Faithful, hardworking, sacrificial Christians will fare better at the Bema seat, at the judgment of Christ, they will fare better than lazy, self-indulgent Christians. They will. You may very well make it into heaven, but you will not experience it like those who have obeyed Jesus in love. That's what it means to live with this awareness that the end of all things is near. It can happen at any moment. We are not promised tomorrow. None of us are. Live today in light of the fact that all things, that the end of all things is near. Now, in our text here for the morning, Peter gives us an insight into the kind of life that a Christian ought to live in light of the end of all things being near. So, the end of all things is near, and he tells us largely, so live for the good of others. So live for the good of others. That's kind of a, a summary statement. See, we have this high calling and this privilege to live for the good of others. And he tells us, look in verse 7, therefore be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. As always, one of the most important activities Christians can participate in is prayer. He's saying, bring your whole mind into it. Be clear-minded, be sober-minded, be alert Make certain that you do that so you can pray. That's going to be one of the key ideas. He also tells us in verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. To offer hospitality. I like this because what we're doing is we're folding others into our relational sphere. What's, what struck me as odd is that he said do it without grumbling. I'm like, really? Like you're going to throw a barbecue and you're going to be grumbling about it? And then I realized, actually, we do. <laughs> Oh my goodness, there are going to be so many people. What am I going to do? They're going to be tramping all over my garden. Oh, but I, I, you know, my family's going to come into town. They're going to be staying with me for two weeks. Can't they stay at a hotel? Like, you know, and when, what is that? If just, if just entertaining people at the smallest level of hospitality, opening up your home and have people over for a party, if that creates grumbling, you have to ask yourself why. And of course, it's because it puts us out. It changes our routines. It makes us other focused rather than than self-focused. 
And we want to be self-focused. In fact, that's why we really grumble, isn't it? Because it's going to cost time and money, and they're going to put me out, and now i got to deal. I have to muster up the energy emotionally to engage in their, in their lives. <sighs> so exhausting. So we do it with grumbling. We, and the scriptures are saying, no. And it's beyond that. It's not just simply being able to host your family or a friend or help somebody. You're talking about folding people into your social networks. Do you still have slots on your dance card to fold people in? Do you have seats at your table where you can fold people into your relational circles, where you can show hospitality? He goes on in verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. We've told you this in the past, but based on that recent survey, we found out that about half of the people who attend Beacon actually serve in some way. So 50% have decided that serving in some way, now I'd love to hear that all, all 50% of them are serving in some very aggressive ways outside of you know, the, the, the Beacon um, structures. That would be amazing. I just know that isn't true. Some are, uh, but the majority aren't. And even of those that are serving, many of us are still serving in very nominal ways. Why I find that fascinating is because in Peter's world, that never would have existed. He doesn't even really exhort them to like increasing it. It's just really assumed throughout the New Testament that followers of Christ will serve others. Like it's hard for them to have imagined it not being so. They often just remind them of these things or encourage the attitude to do it in. But the idea that it wouldn't happen, it just it doesn't make any sense. Of course, of course you'd serve others. I mean, that's who Jesus was. It, it, it wouldn't even make any, there's not really even a category for it. Of course we would serve others. Now, all of these will be covered in more depth later in the summer, but you sort of get the idea here. Peter is laying out what we're supposed to be doing, the something that we're supposed to be doing, Peter is starting to lay it out here. He's saying, look, this is what we're supposed to be doing. If you want to love your spiritual family the way Peter describes, you're going to pray for them, you're going to serve them, you're going to be in a relationship with them and be hospitable and all that kind of stuff. But he goes on to say that we do that by loving them deeply. The end of all things is near. Live for the good of others by loving them deeply. Deeply. In fact, this is the most important way we live for the love for the good of others is by loving them. Look what he says in verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Above all. So this is it, right? So if you've been fading out a little bit here, if you, you, know, you haven't quite been paying attention, you're not quite with me here, you're just kind of daydreaming and hoping you can go check your Facebook or whatever it is, right now he's saying, listen, above all, this is, what, this is it, that's it, this is what you need. If you can't remember anything else, if the server is full and you only get a little bit more space in there, he's saying, above all, what I'm about to tell you is the single most important thing of everything else. Above all, above all, love each other deeply. Would you repeat that with me? Above all, love each other deeply. Let's do that again. Above all, love each other deeply. To love deeply. Now, this is not about 
the intensity of emotions, okay? So I want to I kind of go clear with that because sometimes we think about deep love and we're like, that means I really feel it. Like I don't feel it a little, I really feel it. It's like a deep thing. That's not how this word is to be understood. This deep love isn't so much about the intensity of your feelings. It's about persistence in the face of difficulties. It's the kind of love that pushes through, not about your emotional state. I mean, because you don't really control your emotions, right? I mean, we, we sort of do a little bit. We can kind of keep them tamped down. And, but mostly you feel what you feel, right? I mean, that's what, what ends. So you get a friend, they gossip about you. They throw you under the bus. You hear about it. You feel hurt. Do you try not to feel hurt? You are hurt. You're going to feel hurt. What you do next decides whether you love deeply. Do you write them off? Do you gossip about them? Do you throw them under the bus? Do you say, I'm never going to talk to them again? Or do you press through, despite the difficulties, try to cultivate the relationship, try to restore the relationship, try to get back to a place where you can love each other with trust and with honesty, with integrity? Now you've loved deeply. The emotional part of it is just the, the, it's the emotional part of it. Maybe you could think of it in another way as well. Deeply, when, you, when you're using this word, the, the scriptures kind of talk about it as if it's the stretching of the thing. So deeply goes to the bottom and, and it goes to the top, right? And so if, you're, if God, you know, God uh, sees the depth of things and he sees the heights of things, there's a stretching that this word implies. And this is a, this is a helpful thing for us because we know how stretching works. Well, I guess we know it like kind of, so anyway, Chris, it was like 15 years ago, right? Chris and I used to go uh, to the same gym and we would work out like four or five times a week together. We don't work out uh, together anymore because Chris still goes to the gym. <laughs> so uh, so <laughs> that's how that went down. Anyway, for whatever reason, <clears throat> we were being told at the time, you know, stretching is really important and he and I were not uh, particularly uh, stretchable. And so uh, somebody said, you got to try the yoga class. So like 15 years ago, we did. We tried the yoga class, and it was silly. Here's me and Chris. People are putting their, like, ankles behind their head, and, you know, they're, like, just ridiculous, bending in all these contorted, really grotesque ways. And, and uh, so we're sitting there. I'm like, you know, I could touch your toes, but, like, you know, going to my, I'm like, this is silly, right? So anyway, that's me and Chris. We can't, you know, we're just totally inflexible in many ways, actually. Uh, I, was, I heard that as you were hearing it. Um, but, uh, but, uh, so just recently I decided, so, you know, I had a, you know, physical therapist, some others that said, Hey, you got to do yoga. I think you even tell me, Eddie's like, you got to do yoga. Don't think less of Eddie cause he does yoga. Okay. <laughs> so, so anyway, you got to do yoga, right? Like, cause this is like an important thing. You got this flexibility, your core and all this. And so I decided to go back to a yoga class. Would you believe it? 15 years after my first class, I, I'm still not any more flexible. I just don't understand it. In fact, I seem less flexible now than I did 15 years ago when I wasn't flexible at all. Well, how is this possible? Of course, you know how. That's what stretching does. And stretching doesn't happen by sitting on the couch with your hand in the chip bag, right? It, it, stretching is going to take place when you actually stretch it. You want to know what a deep love is? You need to stretch it. You want to understand how to get better at love, you need, to, you need to actually work it. You need to pull it apart. You need to put it to its limits. You need to get it to the max. 
before you're actually going to be able to love deeply. If you can't love deeply today, don't worry about it. Go as far as you can. Press into it. Go deeper. Take back every inch you can. With every exhale, grab another inch. And you'll stretch it. That's how you love deeply. Above all, love deeply. But there's more here, isn't there? Because he says that this deep love covers sin. Love covers sin. What does that mean? I mean, right out of the gate, you get to say, all right, I get it. Love covers sin by hiding all of the small offenses. And I think there is some real truth in that. You know, I think, you know, we can actually just decide not to get all riled up in the first place. There's all sorts of like certain frustrations or idiosyncrasies, pet peeves. They never even need to see the light of day. I'm not the easiest person in the world to live with. And I think my wife has just decided I'm not going to get upset about a whole lot of things that I can get upset about because otherwise I'd be upset all the time. Like I think there's a, there's a way in which love covers a multitude of sin. There's just a lot of small little things that could actually become bigger things. Now, I'm not saying this isn't about covering up sin. You know, I've heard it described. It's more like, you know, it's more like saving money to cover a bill. You know how people talk about that? They're like, hey, don't worry about it. I got it covered. You know, right? They're going to, because of their position of strength, financially or however else you want to think about it, they're able to cover the bill of another. And it's sort of like that. There's a way in which we use that language of a covering from a position of strength. You go, yeah, I'm not going to get it riled up about a whole lot of these things. I think that's a good way of thinking about how love covers a multitude of sins. But I think in the immediate context, we can go a little bit deeper than that. This in this, this uh, reference that Peter has is most likely a quotation of a proverb. Proverbs 10, 12. The proverb says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. It's as if Peter was quoting this verse, which means he might very well have the, the idea of this verse wrapped up in his meaning as well. That's how it, it can often be done in the scriptures. So how is it? That hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers overall wrongs. Now, what, I'm, what I don't think it means is that we're sweeping things under the rug. I don't think we're covering it that way. You know how that works, right? We make believe there's no sin. We make believe there's nothing wrong. Many of you come from families that practice this. How, how well does that work in creating deep love? Like, never, right? I mean, does it... It doesn't. You can't just sweep these things under the rug. When you have significant issues, you don't sweep them under the rug and think that's covering them. It's not. Think of it like this. In, in this proverb, hatred and love are compared. So, like, it's hatred and it's love. If there's parallelism in here, we can sometimes learn about the second half of it from the first half. And so the, the, the proverb says, hatred stirs up conflict, so love must cover all wrongs. Well, how does love cover all wrongs? by not stirring up conflict. See, it's, it, they're related. The parallelism would indicate that, this, that the way you cover all wrongs is by not stirring up conflict. And I think this is an important thing for us to think about. I, I need, like, I need, uh, yeah, Sean, come on, Sean. Here's, thanks. I'm not going to call for a volunteer because you, you all look down. You do that weird thing. I'll just call you up. All right, so here's a big guy, right? And uh, this is a proud guy. Proud in that, not in the negative sense, but proud like, you know, he's no one's doormat. And why should he be? I mean, look at him, right? He's like, you're like, 
you get a little bigger. He's got like broader, right? He actually goes to the gym. Um, and so, okay, occasionally. And so anyway, <laughs> Sean's a great guy. He's a good guy. And he, you know, he's the kind of a guy that like, you know, he's not gonna, you know, you don't push him around, right? Which is why when you're like, hey, Right? Like, it's like, like, even like knowing that I'm doing this like as, a, as I'm messing around, like, we're friends, like, I love Sean, but even just doing that, it's like, it's not like you're like, oh, <laughs> right? Like, you're already feeling it. And there's even a little bit of you that feels like, that's not funny. Like, this is, we didn't rehearse this. This is screwed up. You can't really be messing around like that because it's like, you know, and you can think, <laughs> like, there's this thing that goes on, right? And so, what, what happens is when, when, when you're actually sinning against a person, it's like you're shoving them. You know, there's energy. There's this thing going into this world. It's like, you know, there's, and, and of course, what do you want to do in those moments? What you want to do is you want to, you want to, you want justice. You want to strike back. You want to get what's yours. You want, you're not going to be a doormat for anyone. And because of that, you're saying, it's time for me to flex my muscle. Time for me to show my strength. I'll bite back. Right? And we're glad he didn't because it'd be really embarrassing. Anyway, thank you, Sean, for, right? But what it ends up, yeah, that's right, that's it. That could have gone very different. Uh, but you th think of it like this. When, when someone sins against another person, when someone shoves you, someone has sinned against you, and you refuse to shove them back, you've covered their sin. From a position of strength, you've covered their sin. So it means rather than let conflicts get stirred up, it means we practice patience and peacemaking. It doesn't, we don't let wrongs come to full maturity. We starve the conflicts and the dissension and the arguments and we take a blanket of peace and we smother it. We smother those sparks. When someone refuses to act in response to a provocation, when someone absorbs and processes that negative energy rather than, than bouncing the, the energy back, we can break the cycle of conflict. But I think we can go even deeper than this based on this idea of covering. See, so far we're talking about how how to do this as a Christian, to love more, be more. Do How do you do that? What do you root that in? And I think the scriptures give us the answer because James, the brother of Jesus, takes this same proverb and he quotes it in a slightly different way. James 5.20, he says, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. He's taking it in a different direction here for us. This sounds more like Psalm 32, which says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. See, now we're not talking about simply small irritants or the ability to not stir up conflicts. We're talking about what do we do when someone really hurts us. You guys remember the Ark of the Covenant, right? Indiana Jones found it, then he lost it, then it's hidden in a, like a government warehouse somewhere. Like, true story. And so, you guys remember that, right? And so, anyway, the Ark of the Covenant, inside the Ark is where we, they kept the tablets of the law. The Ten Commandments were put inside this gold box. And on top of it, where the angels are, this is called the atonement cover, or we call it the mercy seat. And the angels, they spread over the mercy seat, and this is where the people would meet with God, that, that the priest would come in and talk with them. But even more importantly than that, the reason it's called the mercy seat or the atonement cover is because once a year, the, the priest would go and they'd kill an animal. 
And they would take the blood of this sacrifice, of this innocent animal, and they would sprinkle it on the atonement cover. See, underneath the cover, of course, was the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is what stands as your judge. The Ten Commandments is the way you've failed. It's all the sins you've committed. It's all the wrongs that you've made. And, it, and it's all of the things that make you the broken person that you know you are, the wrongs you don't even know about and the wrongs that you have done that you know about. They're all there exposed in the Ten Commandments. And the atonement cover covers them. And the atonement cover is made holy through the sacrifice of the innocent, the blood being sprinkled on it. And in that way, the sin against the law, the sin against God has been covered. The mercy seat. And this is such a powerful, powerful image throughout the Old Testament. There would be no forgiveness of sins without the atonement seat. Without this moment of the sprinkling of the blood. And then fast forward to the time of Christ. Romans chapter 3. It says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. You see God takes the blood of the innocent sacrifice of Christ and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat for you and for me. He's the, he's the atoning sacrifice. You want to know how it is <coughs> that Christians can learn to love deeply. Why we stretch our love. Why we seek to even talk about covering the sin of another person, which is so foreign a concept in this world. Why would we even think about it? Because it's what Jesus did for you. It's what he did for me. He covers our sin. And our love, modeled on Christ's love, can cover sins in his name. We can give people a taste of what it is like to have Christ's love for them. We can do that to take Christ's love to your world. Let his, his love cover others. I wonder how many conflicts in churches, church splits and people hopping from one place to another, issues within group, you know, groups of Christians and how they often storm off another. I wonder how many of these things would be avoided if we practiced this. If we knew we were children of the most high God whose sins had been covered because of the sacrifice of Christ. How would we live differently with each other? How would it knit us together as a family, as a spiritual family? What kind of sacrifices would we be willing to make if we could forever remember that it was the blood of Christ that covered our sin? And that he's calling us to love deeply in that same way. What would it look like in your family or with your spouse? You know what happens when love abounds, when love is... It's just overflowing in a marriage. Many of the small offenses and even the large ones, they're often overlooked. They're often forgotten. But the opposite is so, there, is so true. When the commitment to love isn't there, it seems like there's an offense that's lurking in every corner. Every stray word becomes a catalyst for a fight. Every action is open to misunderstanding. The motives are all viewed with suspicion. I mean, this is what happens in our homes. When we refuse to love deeply and let the love, the, the, the covering of Christ's blood 
flow through us and start to cover the sins of the people all around us. And think about what it looks like in the world. John actually hits it for us. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, speaking of Jesus, he says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What are you doing about that, Christian? Are you able to take the love of Christ to a world that desperately needs it? And are you able to help them experience the covering of sin because of how you have lived and loved in the power of Christ? There are people all around you who are separated from the love of God. They're separated and they experience the shame and the guilt that their sin rightly deserves because there has been no one to show them, to experience it, to tell them, to model the love that Christ really has for them. There's no one there to tell them about the mercy seat and to prove it through the way they live. There's no one there saying, listen, yes, you've sinned. Yes, it's, your, it's the punishment that you deserve. Yes, these things are true. Yes, there's right for, you have guilt and you have shame. Yes, that is all true. But, we, but you don't know about the mercy seat. You don't know about the love of Christ that covers sin. And because they don't know it, they end up feeling their shame. They, feel, they experience their nakedness, as the scriptures describe it. They feel exposed in the world. There's no covering for them. And they move away from Jesus. But you can change that for them. It's what you're called to do. It's what Jesus did for you. So take the love of Jesus to your neighbors and let his love cover a multitude of sins. I'm going to ask that the band is going to come up. They're going to lead us in a couple of worship songs as we get to reflect on these things and just think about the great gift and the mercy and to thank God for it through our act of worship. And that's really what we do here. And while they're coming up and getting ready, I just want to pray for a moment. Would you bow your heads and, and, and pray with me? Lord, I'm asking that you would draw us powerfully into your presence. May we use this time, Lord, to thank you for the covering of our own sins. May we use this time, Lord, to reflect on how or if we've loved deeply. Help us, Lord, to wrestle with this idea that above all else, your love can cover a multitude of sins in us and in others. Draw us, Lord, into that reality. Make us the men and the women who live this every moment of every day through the power of the cross working in us. Amen.